Something is wrong. Something is wrong with me. Lizzie, I know. That's why we need to get you help. No, but I'm dying. Don't you understand? No, I'm I don't understand. But I am. I'm dying. I'm dying. It's on the inside. So don't try and understand. Why are you trying so hard to Did ruin I my life? You'll thank me later. For what? Leaving Dad? I'm trying to give you every opportunity that I can. For what? So I can become a strong, independent woman like you? Such a slightest breath And I know who I am Look at me! I'm about to have our baby! Why is that not enough for you? Of course it's enough! I'm not going anywhere, I'm here with you. I want to be alone with you. See, this is why it scares me, is because you don't take it seriously. I take it seriously. I think it's pretty, like... You have a camera in my face in the bathroom. Yeah, you look beautiful in the morning, by the way. Maybe we shouldn't have the camera. Uh, hello? Words that define And they scream it out loud Welcome to Series 3 of The Projectionist Podcast. Horror films affect us all in different ways, but fear is a universal and psychologically fascinating emotion. This season, we're talking about women in horror, dividing our exploration into themes including demons, pregnancy, the detective, the extreme, perfection, and love. We'll be discussing the portrayal of female subjectivity in horror, as well as the impact that watching them can have on us as women. Don't be scared, you're safe with us. Thank you, Sarah. We'll be in touch. Hi, Mary. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm really excited to be recording this. Me too. I watched these films that we're going to talk about the, both uh, this morning, so oh. I'm pretty sad. <laughs> um, so um, today we are... Continuing with our women in horror season. Yeah. Today we're going to be talking about love. Mm-hmm. Um, Mary, love and horror. What did Freud think about these things? <laughs> well, um, I think actually the essence of that dynamic, love and horror, love and de- the death drive, mm-hmm. Those concepts can really be found very much uh, encapsulated in his essay, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, which he published in 1920s. We're coming up to the 100-year anniversary of that paper. And for him, it was very much the case that you can't have one without the other, that actually love is a terrifying thing, Mm -hmm. you know, and the the survival instincts and the the erotic uh, drives are actually... It always existing side by side with the death drive. Um, and a functional way to life is to accept that and understand that rather than try and suppress the horrific element of love. Mm-hmm. Love is, is a scary thing. Mm-hmm. And the horror language gives us an amazing landscape to, to really explore that kind of stuff. To kind of, particularly horror films that portray a romantic story or elements of eroticism Mm -hmm. they give us an opportunity to kind of unconsciously engage with this idea of this kind of entwined dual system between love and death Mm -hmm. yeah do you think love is uh love the horror elements of love are better explored with female characters i do yeah i do yeah why do you think so 
Because I think that um, women have been socialized to, in a way that we've, we've been kind of programmed almost in our upbringing and in, in the way that we've been encouraged to relate to society to almost be romanticized or that or that romance and erotic love or romantic love that these should be our preoccupations mm-hmm. now of course inherent in that is uh it's actually quite reductive and it's there's an element of misogyny of that in that because it's actually restricting the parameters of our agency we're so much more than that of course mm-hmm. but alternatively horror films that center around female characters where they're shown to either be in love or have some kind of erotic crisis it those are films where we get this kind of really interesting range that features how toxic those mm-hmm. values have been in our conditioning and how th- the, and the women, you know, the stories about women, particularly films directed by women that feature on love. Um, here's an opportunity to kind of almost reclaim our feelings about that, like mm-hmm. our conflicted feelings about romance and eroticism, and our role in those relationships, and how sometimes it's really, it can be actually a very um, destructive force in our life. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's like I would say that's like a cultural topic, about yeah. like love and sex and the way, especially in heterosexual relationships, yeah. or not even heterosexual relationships, but heterosexual like, you know exchanges yes. between men and women I think that's quite a sort of that's a big thing you know I know when we did our evolution of horror guest thing we spoke a little bit about Weinstein yeah and that sort of thing it's kind of in the air and yeah. I think it just seems to be in the air like all the time at the moment I have a group of friends who um there's a sort of saying amongst them which is that it's not it's a, a statistic that one of them heard and then I just a different one. I was at dinner with them the other day, and the different one of them repeated it to me, and I was just like, "That's like the motto of this group of friends," and it's that statistically, um, in like heterosexual married couples, men are happier when married, and women are less happy than marriage. So if you mm. look at it like that, marriage is a woman uh, sacrificing her happiness for a man, mm. and the, all of my all of these friends are married, so mm-hmm. it's a really strange mm. thing that's going around. <laughs> and I also think a lot about. I've been thinking a lot about it myself. Yes. And I keep thinking about that Catherine Ryan joke. Mm. Um, men are nature's handguns. Statistically, you're most likely to be killed by the one in your house. <laughs> great, great gag. It's such a That's gag. her new comedy routine That's on Netflix. Her, on Netflix, yeah. yeah just, we haven't been paid, but yeah. like, it's really, really good. <laughs> it is good. But yeah, I think that in a way could be the tagline of this, um, yeah. this episode a little bit. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the horror um, sort of mechanism and the process of making these kinds of films and the language that it actually supplies us mm-hmm. particularly as women is such an essential one it's and because it actually gives us a, a, it's very liberating it gives us a, a, an opportunity to talk about things that otherwise in a different context would be taboo mm-hmm. you know so the idea that this thing we've been sold this this dream we've been sold a promise that love is the answer for us it saves us from our problems and we should be longing for it and aspiring to it and really like orbiting our whole lives around romantic love and marriage mm-hmm. that in fact the, the paradoxically paradoxically the exact opposite is true that actually uh, a monogamous uh, relationship that r- restrains our erotic desire is actually a threat to our agency as women, mm-hmm. that there's something there to explore. 
And um, and that's why I, I, I'm so grateful to the horror genre because it really kind of, rather than just uh, gloss over those issues that are very valid and exist, it brings those things right up front, right in the open. Yeah, actually, I remember there was a point where I was getting over the most horrendous breakup of my life. And mm. I, I, a, lot, I, a large part of the cure that I prescribed myself was horror films, especially mm. when I started going through extreme horror. That was, that was the first yeah. time I was brave enough to go to extreme horror because I was feeling so bad I thought I couldn't yeah. feel any worse. But if anyone out there would like my prescription breakup horror film list, I would be happy to supply it. Yeah. I mean, it's not for the faint of heart, but I think if you're feeling bad you can't and you can't feel any worse, I think I have some really, really great horror films that will get you over a broken heart. I really, honestly, I could, I really think it should be like prescription. You should get it with your antidepressants. That sounds like a great cinema season. I, yeah, yeah <laughs> actually, it is. Oh, we should definitely, we should have a little broken hearts festival and then just show like, extreme love yeah. horror films. Um, okay, yeah. so today we are going to. There were so many films that we could have chosen, as yeah. always, but we're going to be cho- we're going to be talking about the 2016 film Hounds of Love mm-hmm. and the 2001 French film Trouble Every Day. Mm-hmm. But I think we're going to start with Hounds of Love. Let's start with that one. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Mary, do you want to you want to yeah, do a synopsis? Yeah, I'll run through a quick synopsis of it. Oh. So this is the. Um, As you say, 2016 release, Australian psychological horror drama film. It's written and directed by Ben Young, based on the real-life Morehouse murders and the survival story of Kate Moyer. Mm -hmm. And it features a couple, John and Evelyn, who kidnap, terrorize, and murder um, teenage girls at night in the suburbs of Perth. It's pretty, like, horrific stuff, really. Um, so this film really centers on their newest victim, Vicky, who's uh, lured by them while sneaking out after an argument with her mother. And it, it's worth also mentioning that she comes from a kind of like broken home, like her parents are divorcing, mm-hmm. they're separated. Um, so she's already experiencing some problems at home. She feels a little bit, uh, she's quite angsty. You know, she's a typical teenager. Yeah. And she sneaks out and gets kidnapped by these people and is then forced to uh, watch the couple um, basically perform terrible acts in front of her. They tie her to a bed. Um, and ultimately, she through this horrific uh, situation of abuse where they're keeping him, her locked in their house, she begins to actually see cracks in their relationship. Um, and hopes to escape. Mm-hmm. Good synopsis. Yeah. Cool. Um, so this film is actually a, de- a debut, and we both mm. love it so much. And I think yeah. that it kind of, I think that it's something that you could maybe, especially because it is based on those that true story, the amazing, amazing Kate uh, Moyer who escaped from the, the situation just like this one. Mm. Um, so I guess it could be seen as quite a gratuitous story. Yeah. But we were talking about it, and it's just not gratuitous at all. The no. Thing. I mean, every, like they do show a lot yeah. of what happened, but it's not. There's nothing. There's nothing that gratuitous in it. No. It's like horrifying, like nail biting, and horrible. It's horrible, mm. but it's not. It's not like. It's not unpleasant in the way that. Yeah. In the way that you'd think it would be, I suppose. Absolutely. It really strikes a fine balance between suggesting horrific things that are happening without having to show them, but somehow by withholding the visual content, what we're imagining is so much worse probably than what they might show anyway. Mm -hmm. 
because there's there, there's also a great experimentation with sound and the camera kind of veering away and we know something's going on. Mm-hmm. So in the end, the horror element is that much stronger. Because, I mean, I'm, I'm a horror fiend. I, I watch a lot of horror films. Yeah. I'm kind of almost desensitized, I would say, to the worst of stuff out there. Yeah. But this really disturbed me. Yeah. Not in a way that I wouldn't recommend it to someone, in the sense that it had a very powerful horror effect on me. I think I'm sort of... Um... I'm coming from a different direction on this yeah. film because I'm still I, I even though I watch a lot of horror, I'm still I still I still get scared of horror watching horror films that I've seen before at cinema. Like I'll yeah. still be scared before I see them even if I've already seen them. Yeah. Like I'm still quite sensitive to horror films, but I I just consume true crime oh, at yes. like a rate of like five or six <laughs> podcasts a day. You know, I've listened to all of them. I've listened to them multiple times. I know all of the stories. I know. I know all the survival stories. I know all the serial killer stories. So coming this like coming from sort of a true crime background, there's something about basically the way this film is kind of structured mm-hmm. is very soothing to me. Mm, you know, I like yes. I like I, you know I like a it's almost a detective film like yeah. from the point of view of her mother who's trying to find her. Yes, and you know a sort of a survival film from the point of view of this girl that's trying to mm. figure out how to play this couple off against each other. To, yeah. Um. So I really I don't know I find. Like, there's something about listening to true crime that I find very soothing, mm. and so I found like I I was with the f- I knew that I and also I know the ending of the story because I yeah. kn- I knew the real sto- the real yeah. story so I knew it was eventually going to be oh, okay. Oh, that's interesting. So you already knew what happened to her. I already knew what happened. Okay. To her. I mean, I was pretty sure that it was a survival story. Sorry, spoilers. Mm, mm, but yeah, mm. how did you feel like during it? Did you think that she may not get out? Okay, so. I taught this film in one of my courses on women in horror films. Mm-hmm. Part of doing that is that when I make montages for these courses, I have to like um, download the film onto my computer, I put it on iMovie, and I start editing for my montage. So what I ended up doing was because I just to kind of like make make the process quicker, I always go to the credits and I cut that out mm-hmm. so that I have less to work with, like less smaller band to work with. And stupidly, I hit. On the band, I ended up hitting at the ending, and I saw the <laughs> the last the shot before you saw the before film. I saw the film. Right. Okay. So that was just epic fail. Yeah. Um. And I was so annoyed with myself because I did not know the story of Kate Moore. I should mm-hmm. I should have just been. I know what happened to her before I watched it. I was really kicking myself. Yeah. But having said that, um, what didn't prepare me was the brilliant style of this film. Mm. And I was completely taken aback that this is a debut film. I'm really excited to see what Ben Young comes up with next. He did music videos before. Oh, I think did. it's like a music video style. That he's got that beginning shot where, yeah. all, where the girls are playing netball in slow motion. It's very music video, I thought. Yeah, yeah. And I can never, now because of this film, I can never listen to Nights in White Satin again. Like, oh yeah, it's got it. Like I, I was looking at the soundtrack because it's actually only got about three, three songs that they needed. I must, know, they must have had a small licensing budget, but they chose those three songs really well. It was oh like yeah, Pat Stevens, uh, um, is it, who, what's Nights and What's That? Moody Blues. Yeah, and um, then that sort of is it a Depeche Mode or a oh, song yeah. at the end? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and then the rest of it is a, it's a composed soundtrack. So they had those three songs chosen really well. Absolutely. And in real life, um, the song that they that um, Kate Moore described them actually making her dance to was oh, um, Dire Straits Romeo and Juliet. <gasps> oh, that song. Sorry, I've got a bit of a song for you. <laughs> <laughs> 
but it's so powerful because I find that I've, I, I'm almost a little disappointed they didn't I mean I think that Moody Beauty yeah. song is really romantic but there's something about Romeo and Juliet which is just yeah. like it really does sort of hint at this like horrifying confusion of love and eroticism yeah. and violence yeah and I, so I think it's a bit of a shame they couldn't actually use that oh my that god because I just think it would have been it's perfect it's that's perfect. perfect I did not so, know I mean, about that the, the that real that tr- real couple in a way were just like soundtracking their crime perfectly in this unconscious way oh my god yeah yeah that's really fascinating weird. so let's talk about the women yeah and the women and their loves i suppose yeah in this film, because i think there's actually quite a huge amount of backstory for all of the women in these in this film yes and all of the women are kind of struggling with realizing their own sort of dreams and aspirations and being with someone else you know the mother's mm-hmm. decided that she can't she can't do both and she's going to choose herself mm-hmm. um vicky's decided that i mean vicky's sort of rebelling against her mother mm. but at the same time kind of absorbing what she's being taught by her unconsciously i think there's a really interesting bit where she says where uh, you know the mother makes her stay in mm-hmm. not go to the party because she's got the, her boyfriend to write an essay for her and she wants her to do it again yeah and, you know, she's she says, sort of grounded. She's grounded. Yeah. And she says, you know, I just want you to do well. And she says, why? So I can be a strong, independent woman like you. But actually, like, throughout the film, she has proved to have to have, to be this strong, independent exactly. woman. Just like her mother. And it's really nice. It's a really, like, the, the idea that's kind of the last thing she says to her. Mm. But she goes out there and is, like, and is survives this thing all by herself. Mm-hmm. Just through, and you know, there's this worry that she's not intelligent enough, she's not bright enough to, she's not hardworking mm-hmm. enough to make it in the real world. She's actually very resourceful. She's really resourceful. And then you've got Evelyn, mm. who again is, you know, has these two kind of opposing worlds of yeah. wanting her children back, wanting to be a mother. She's very motherly at some points in the film, mm-hmm. and then having this really dysfunctional relationship that she's. She's that a co abuser. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So it's this, you've got these kind of almost like three options yeah. for but relationships with men. The theoretical backdrop mm-hmm. that really makes this film click into place for me is the primal scene. The primal scene. Okay, explain to me the primal scene. So basically, this is a concept by Freud where he talked about the, pri- the primal scene being the initial witnessing by a child of a sex act. Mm-hmm. And usually it's between their parents. Like they just accidentally walk in on their parents having sex. Um, And that this can be observed by the child, but it gets blown up in their imagination in terms of what, how they construct it. It has a very enigmatic quality. They may have even like embellished the scene in their mind, put more into it than what they actually saw because it's something they don't understand. Mm -hmm. They don't, they don't have the template for that understanding. They're just a kid. Um, and it's usually something that is unconsciously dynamic and experienced, um, kind of like sometimes as returning as a conversion symptom, some sort of neurotic or anxious relationship with sexuality that's actually rooted in witnessing the sex act. Mm-hmm. For it said that if it, if the primal scene has not been resolved properly within the family, it can it can risk splintering the development of the child where they become really neurotic about sex, Mm -hmm. okay? So he described the primal scene as, he he qualified it as an overwhelming unknown. I love that turn of phrase, um, where the child is aware that they're witnessing something like very essential, but they don't know what it is. And they sometimes even 
uh, interpret violent qualities about the scene. Mm -hmm. So it, it sort of thrusts them into a world of unknown that they don't understand, and it produces excess curiosity, excitement, but also extreme confusion and horror. So my thing is that in, when it comes to Vicky in Hounds of Love, the director takes great care to situate her right at the beginning of the film in her family context, mm -hmm. where we see her interacting with uh, her parents who are splitting up. We get we see the situation of the breakup of her parents from her from her eyes, mm -hmm. and we understand that she, for her, she, it's confusing. She doesn't know why her mom is really leaving the family. She doesn't understand it, and she thinks it's unfair. And um, it's a cause of great sadness for her, but she kind of acts it out as frustration, right? Which is kind of normal, actually. And um, she's kind of witnessing a violent thing between her parents. She's seeing them, you know, she's seeing her fam family breaking apart. Mm -hmm. This causes a great deal of confusion for her. It's kind of an overwhelming unknown for her. So the fact that that family situation is almost kind of replicated in a way in the abduction scenario because she's forced to stay in a room and watch this strange couple, these strangers, perform weird acts together in front of her but also abusive acts against her. Mm -hmm. So I can't help but view Hounds of Love as a kind of return of the repressed. It's interesting that you say that because I think that there's something in common, I mean, there's a couple of things in common with both of these films. Mm. And I thought there was just this overwhelming theme of pounding on closed doors mm. in both in both films. Mm -hmm. You know, like the people outside doors wanting to get in, like, like with these yeah. overwhelming unknowns on the inside of the doors. You know, both in, mm -hmm. um, there's that great scene where he takes her to the bathroom and, and Evelyn's outside and she's sort of mm. pacing, deciding, you know, whether to go in, whether to, whether to, you know, and there's there's actually mm. a really really similar scene in Trouble Every Day where mm. he, um, where Vincent Gallo stops having sex with his wife in the middle and goes into the bathroom and like furiously masturbates. Oh yeah, and then she pounds on the door. She pounds on it's the like door. It's like really, it's really really similar scene of like you know wow. being completely unable to access the unknown quantity on the inside of the door. Exactly. And there's and I think there's. There's a few. There's a few times we have that where we have, you know, think not being quite sure what's happening on the other side of that door, and it like being, a uh, being, the the imagination of what is going on in there, yeah, being too much to resist. And it's you get the same when the the teenage boys are trying to break into the house where Corey is yeah. in, in trouble every day. Yeah, and she pounds on the inside of her shutters. And so true. Sort of, yeah. Oh so I think maybe like they're, but in a way, that way they're sort of both both primal scene films. Wow, I love that. I never considered that, but it's so true. I love these happy accidents when the films that we program to discuss have these kinds of interesting little similarities yeah. and parallels. It really stood out to me because I watched them so I watched Bam like the wow. other day and then Hounds of Love like one after the other. Oh. So I was just it was like watching them all the way through. Like it was like as one feature. Yeah. And it really they seemed to. I mean they're both sort of. They're both threesome films. Yeah. And then they're both, uh, but yeah, they're both pounding on closed door films. I think so. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people, you know, in the rooms inside, inside somewhere else. And, you know, there's, there are, there's a lot of everyone goes through a stage of pounding on a door and wanting to get in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the thing about the primal scene is that the person, uninitiated person witnessing the scene, mm -hmm. um, 
that scene is collapsing onto them like a meteor. It's like this violent event onto their experiential reality. Like they didn't sign up for that. They were just opening a door and hoping to see something quite wholesome and they're seeing this. Yeah. Hounds of Love is like, personally, I've never really seen a film that's better at this at, as this one for driving home the horror element of the primal scene mm-hmm. because she literally has nowhere she can go. She's trapped there. And she's forced to witness things that confuse and horrify her and agitate her and are overwhelming. And she doesn't know what's going to happen to her. She's trapped in the unknown. So it's it's more than overwhelming. It's like beyond traumatic yeah. what's happening to her. And, um, and in a way... I mean, I, obviously I say this without wanting to trivialize the real person who did go through all of this and escaped. Mm-hmm. But I like how because of the stylized way of how this film has been made, because it has a kind of almost like a very dream quality about it. Um, To me, it's almost as if the trauma of her parents breaking up and her not understanding that, you know, toxic dynamic between them, that confusion has been resurrected, but like amplified to 1,000 times more. Mm where she's trapped in a household. It's it's kind of like a repetition of the family life inside the home, but now it's like a nightmare that she but can't escape. It's true, but she does understand it. Like she mm. like I love yeah, the that's scene the thing. where you see her watching yeah. those you see her watching those arguments and you see her storing this information away. And she knows exactly what's going on. She's, she doesn't. She understands this couple much better than she understands. Actually yeah she does. Her, or maybe she understands her parent parents through this couple. And there is like there is I think She's I, observant. She's so observant. I love seeing someone learn in on film. You hardly ever see it. Mm. And it's also I read. There's also a scene. The scene that I find really uncanny and it, it, I found it really anxiety producing and a bit sickening mm. is the moment where Evelyn's gone out and John is by himself with Vicky and he takes that moment to you know torture oh her. Oh God! Yeah. Her. It's really it's horrifying. It's horrible. And but it's the moment where Evelyn comes home. And he hasn't quite, he hasn't quite finished cleaning up after himself. And he sort of scuttles naked around the corner. Uh. She just sees him for a second. And I find, I actually, I find it possibly the most uncanny and frightening moment of the film because Uh. that's such a, it's such an anxiety producing moment for her because it's just, it's just a second of seeing. And that is very, I think that is a little bit primal scream because often you're sort of, you're sort of primal scene. Often your primal scene moment is something really is something really quick. Yes. Something really yes. something that you don't even realise has happened. And that that's what it felt like. It felt like this sort of this devastating all in one yeah. moment. That's fleeting. You something you shouldn't have. But it bursts that bubble. It, completely, it does. And it's just this it's this pure moment of anxiety wow. for Evelyn. And I really I just thought it was really good. Just oh, yeah. quick, this quick flash. The subtlety of that. Yeah, yeah I, I really like that. And actually, in a way, it bears saying that for, in Evelyn's case, she's very much, she's like indoctrinated in this relationship. Mm-hmm. She, it's kind of like a, a cult of two. Yeah. And and John is feeding her all these lies and contr- trying to brainwash her mm-hmm. and kind of bringing her into this like pattern of abuse where she, you could tell that Evelyn's kind of like, She's had to make some personal compromises and like moral compromises to to participate in these behaviors mm-hmm. just to, for the sake of 
maintaining this relationship with John. And so when those little fleeting, uncanny moments occur that become Evelyn's primal scene, we realize how, just exactly how, as you say, devastating they are for her because she's suddenly confronted with, oh my God, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? You know, I'm jeopardizing everything. I'm jeopardizing my relationship with my children. It's so it's so interesting to see. It's 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 like the whole film is like playing house, gone really weird it and really is. disgusting. Well, I know. I also thought it was. It was the kind of it. It was like the non-consensual horror version of like Vicky Christina Barcelona. Oh God. <laughs> like, like, wow, that's so know, true. Like, it's people trying to like like put like a construct in their relationship to make it work yes you know and like there is a lot of there's a lot of that in both films those sort of those things that freud tells you to try and like live without if you're going to if you're going to really survive this horrifying love thing there are so many little and they're often like quite sort of like they seem quite patriarchal sort of systems in place so there's like in in hounds of love um john and evelyn have a box that they keep their like torture oh, implements God. of torture in, and it's this like it's this little wooden box, and only when like the box comes out can they sort of like they can they become this, you know, this, these monsters, mm. and that sort of that sort of their mm. I don't know, and they have this kind of this system where they, like he's not allowed to just rape her alone, like he has That's to, right. you know, that there's it's like it kind of reminded me of like those descriptions you get of like polyamorous relationships and oh all of the Google calendars that have to like sync up to, yeah. to organize, because you have to like organ, you know, it's like organized. It's like a prop um, for your performance. It is. It, oh it, my God. Yeah. And there's a lot of props for, there's like a prop. And then there's the, in Trouble Every Day, there's, you know, there's these pills that are yes. supposedly, you know, curing a sickness. And there's like, there's a, a wife with her like improbable little handbags that don't hold anything and like you know everyone's got these little strange little props of performance and like these ways to kind of structure their dysfunction in a way like we're we're dysfunctional but we're dysfunctional but we'll structure it we'll like we'll give it a you know we'll give it an illness or like we'll agree to do it together or like these rules have to be followed Mm. so that we can like control our dysfunctional relationship it's almost like they're admitting this what we're doing right now is a chaos yeah so what we need to do is to implement like a, a a strategy that will, as you say, contain this madness, yeah. this complete chaos. It actually makes me think of, you know, on Netflix, I don't know if it's a Netflix show, but it is certainly running on Netflix. It's called You, Me, Her. I and it's seen it. it's about a throuple. Okay. So it's about a poly, sort of polyamorous um, group of like three people, two, two women and one, a throuple. Yeah. And uh, they have a lot of things like that. Like there's entire episodes de- dedicated to these rules and these structures. Mm. And they called the third person the unicorn. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that. Yeah. Heard that. I've listened, I listened to, um, what's it called? Uh, that Dan Savage podcast. Uh, yeah. Love. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot. So I, I like know a lot of like the, the rules for like alternative relationships. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. But it is, but it is, I mean, no shade on polyamorous no people. no 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 not at all but it does you know there are like those elements they sort of do seem to be a way of trying to manage the the inevitable pain yes that is that comes hand in hand with love there's a more you know, conscious approach a really conscious approach like a so conscious that you know it's so conscious that it's like a completely different style of love it's not yeah 
Um, but I do think, mm. that, like, Evelyn's an amazing character. Yes. She gets to be so much in this film. Mm. Whereas I think the women in Trouble Every Day, there's something about them that they're a bit divided. They're sort of, like, part of a human mm. in a way. But with her, she you get to see her, like, you get to see her be motherly. You get that bit that, that you know, it's almost... Like you, it's she's almost trust. Like you almost trust her in the beginning when they've they've even though you've seen that they've like murdered a girl beforehand and mm. she's like washed and kept this like girl's clothes. When she goes into the room at the, at the beginning when they first kidnapped her, mm. you know, she says, "How about how about a bath? How about we change your sheets?" Yeah. All of that, you know. That's right. She does. He has this like capacity to be motherly, and it, it's just that's what makes it so. That is literally, for me, the most uncanny and weird element of this film, that um, an abuser is nurturing. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that makes it so scary for me, you know? Um, Because it sort of does also tap into um, this thing about the trauma that we experience with our primary caregivers Mm -hmm. when we are younger, you know? And that weird thing about children... Um, being raised in kind of like uh, abusive households where they they have, until they're able to leave, they have to put up with mm. um, this weird dichotomy of their abusers also looking after them. Yeah. And so it's, it does really well, I think, this film at kind of driving home that frankly very, very complex, very conflicting emotion. Um, it is interesting, isn't it, that he's so against them being parents. Like he won't let her, oh, yeah. he won't let her kids live with them. That's right. But like he's he's keeps bringing her these teenage girls yeah. in this weird way. You know, he want, he doesn't want to be fatherly That's to them, so true. but he does keep. There is something about that really strange that he does. That he denies her, you know, her maternal her maternal like instincts, but he keeps bringing her girls to be maternal with. Oh my god. And it seems, it almost seems It's on like, his terms. It's on his terms. But it almost seems like a little bit of like, a re- I don't know, their relationship mm. is separate from him in a certain, in a, in yeah. a certain way. You know, that, that, that sort of maternal relationship is like, it's nothing that he understands or he really, I don't think he realizes consciously has an idea that he's giving her children. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, every few weeks to like, wow. you know, and then replacing them. But that oh is what God. he's doing. That is exactly what he's doing. Mm. And it's so, again, so ambivalent because he is a control freak. But as you say, he's not privy to this mother-daughter relationship mm. that he is essentially orchestrating. He is, yeah. And yet that is a dimension that he has, he, he cannot intrude on that. It's something that, despite the fact that he is a control freak and he needs to dominate everything uh, and preside over her agency make decisions on her behalf and yet he is unconsciously providing her repeatedly with opportunities for her to bond with these girls in frankly a maternal way mm-hmm. you're right I never thought about it that way that's so crazy yeah it's amazing they're, they're both really really good in this film I'm really like everyone's everyone is brilliant in, in this, this film. film yeah it's, it's like just right from like the smallest characters to, to yeah. these like lead three and you said that the the original, the real person, Kate Moore, she, when she escaped, you said that she... Oh, yeah, it's a really fascinating story. Yeah. Because they, um, they, I think they killed maybe five girls. Yeah. Um, or, and anyway, yeah, she was the last, she was the last girl. She escaped out, she didn't escape, her mother didn't, like, come looking for her. That, yeah. that bit is, like, cinematic, but, um... She, I think she got out the window and went to a neighbour's house and asked to call the police. And the police 
when they she, when the police came and got her, they were going to write her up for wasting police time. They didn't believe her. Oh my god. Yeah, it was like it's because that in the attitude was the in the eighties, like the attitude was girls run away. Like, right. You know, the girl, girls run away. They you know they become you get into trouble. Workers, they yeah. have high risk lifestyles. They brought it on themselves, <gasps> and you know and also just the idea that a married couple would do something like this was ridiculous. You know, it was just like it wasn't unheard of, but it was ridiculous that like it wouldn't it wouldn't have happened. But she was super clever. She, um, she definitely I think worked to kind of turn them against each other. I think he was, he I think he had like a a bit of a habit of like wanting to keep the girls longer, like developing emotional attachments to the girls. And that scene where she says like you have, it's her or me, you kill her now. Yes, like that happened with the girl previously. Oh my god. Um, but she also she did a really clever thing, which was like hiding bit like personal I- like items around the room. So when they did, when she finally persuaded the police to go there and search it, she said, you know, my, my, like my I put like my initial, I wrote something on the wall, I put mm-hmm. like this piece of jewelry in the mattress, like I put the pills they gave oh, me in yeah. the mattress, like stuff like that, and then and they found all of that stuff and believed her that she had been in there. Oh my gosh! So her story checked out. So her story checked out, but she had to work quite hard to make them believe her. They that, weren't even going to go and investigate. That's appalling. Yeah, they were sitting on basically serial killers, you know, unsolved mystery and. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. But I mean, that's... Have you heard about that uh, Teacher's Pet no. podcast? Um, which is also, I think, in Australia. Um, which is a mum from the 80s, like, disappeared. Like, mum of two, I think. And uh, her husband was a PE teacher in a school. And, like, after she disappeared, he didn't... He, like, told the family that... Her family that she'd, like, left him and gone away and, like, never mm-hmm. came back to visit her children. Okay. And then he moved his mistress, who was a student at school, a 15- or 16-year-old girl at school, and moved her in with his family and married her. God. And, um... And no one did anything. And it was, like... And as they were investigating it, it kind of turned out that this this like relationship between him and the student like it wasn't a one-off there was like the whole school was like it was like a pedophile ring like oh all God. of these teachers praying on like having like having parties with these underage girls and boys sometimes like it was like all of these pupils like this whole generation of pupils oh my God. getting abused by and like no one did anything at all like you know no one that's can you imagine like can you imagine that your next door neighbor like moved in a 16 year like his wife disappeared and the 16 year old moved in like not doing anything but no one did anything like so and it's still unsolved but like everyone's certain that it was him and he did something to his wife and got rid of her but it's been such a long time they can't find a body they can't find anything this is absolutely staggering it just goes to show that it's one of those things where if it's happening in plain sight Mm -hmm. um and it has these kind of elements that are quite wholesome, like schools or married couples or whatever, that bring on our own projections about like them being good things, then potentially humans are capable of turning a blind eye yeah. to the absolute most horrific things that are happening almost under their nose. That's shocking. Yeah, but I think that there is, is something to be said for our attitudes about love yes when something's happening inside someone's relationship or you know between a man and a woman like in part you know like even sometimes mm. i remember when i was um like about 21 i got mugged in the street oh my God. and it, there was like a bit of a tug of war like the guy grabbed my bag i held on to my bag you know you just don't think i yeah. held on to my bag and i wouldn't let go until he like kicked me in the stomach and i let go oh of the God. bag and at that point there were a lot of people around and at that point a guy came up to me and went 
Do you know him? What? But there is something like because of our like slightly fucked up notions of love about what happens, yeah. particularly in heterosexual relationships. What happens? Actually, no. I think actually we have a. We, there is like a bit of a shroud of mystery over what happens in all relationships. Mm-hmm. When you think something might be intimate, you like wow. you, you leave it to leave them to sort it out. You know there is that attitude about it. love. Like love is so horrifying that like that there's a closed door. Oh my we God. like impose a closed door over it and I think anything that happens that is like sexual or like romantic or to do with like some kind of love Mm -hmm. you know people it's a hard it's hard thing for people to feel like they can step into because you're stepping into this chaos that it's overwhelming unknown overwhelming unknown that people have constructed because no one knows how to love properly you know or like or very few people know how to love properly and you get, you know, you, like, look at, look at, I know, hate to keep bringing it up, but look at Weinstein, like, with mm. emails from Pastor La Huerta saying Absolutely. she loved him. Like, we, like, we don't, because, you know, love's a scary thing, and we, like, impose it over, we, like, paste it over all kinds of horror. Yeah. All the time. And I think that's a really good example of, of, you know, how that, how that kind of thing happens. I think Absolutely. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. Mm. Incredible. Anyway. Um, should we move on to trouble every day? Yeah. Unless you've got something, anything else? No, no. I, that's perfect place to I end. I primal scene thing was really good because I, yeah. wrote, I wrote down closed doors, mm. people banging on them, why? And then you explained uh. it to me. So <laughs> it was great. No. Okay. The, yeah, I, I actually think, yeah, it is a good segue into trouble every day. Trouble every day. Okay. Can I do the... Yeah, okay. please right. do. So a 2001 French erotic horror film directed by Claire Denis, written by Denis and J.P. Fargo. An American couple, Dr. Shane Brown and his wife June, go to Paris, supposedly for their honeymoon. In mm. reality, Shane has travelled to Paris to hunt down neuroscientist Dr. Leo Seminot mm-hmm. and his wife Corey, who he once knew and was obsessed with. Corey is a cannibal. She seduces men and eats their, f- their flesh, killing them. Leo cleans up after her, cares for her, and locks her in the house when he goes to work. Which sounds like a like I as I whenever I read that last line I think it sounds like a, like a, a Netflix series or something yeah yeah but yeah. it's a, it's really horrifying film yeah really it's really sickening it I is was, um, it's it's a real gross out film it's really gross and it, t- <laughs> it takes you by surprise because it's like a very like this very kind of calm slow build up there's hardly any dialogue hardly any dialogue you know the shots are all very kind of sensual mm. and then you get these like these two oh scenes my god that are so horrifying that I, I it was really like yeah. it's amazing it's pretty proper horror oh yeah yeah and it's um i think for me this is my favorite film by claire denis i think you know i i really like her as a director i like i just find that her directing style mm-hmm. uh, really peaks for me in the horror genre because mm-hmm. it does sort of make you wonder for a very long time what's going on and Right up to the end, we we were not quite sure, and then suddenly it dawns on us what's really happening in this love triangle, mm-hmm. as effectively. Um, but I think that's exactly, you know, from from the point of view of June, you know, um, you know Shane's wife, she's yeah. kept in the dark about what the hell is going on with her husband. Like they're supposed to be on their honeymoon. They're but going I- to Paris, the most, you know, one of the most romantic cities in the world. I know, but there's something about June. Yeah. There's something about June and their relationship that is like, like, can she even be a real person? Wow. Yeah. Did, like there was, I, I found her the strangest character. Like, <laughs> like everything about, like everything about their their relationship is like too. There's something so kind of. There's mm. something so. 
dishonest about and I, I think it's deliberate about the way mm-hmm. that they're portrayed together because their relationship it's almost too gentle mm-hmm. like it's so gentle he treats her like a doll and she looks like a doll she wears these weird little like 60s like like skirt like suit like little like you know sort of like little like sort of little courage mm. or chanel like little suits and like little gloves and little tiny handbags that you can't fit anything into, little headscarves. And she's so she's so sweet. Like there's a bit where she like touches the maid on the arm and smiles and like I don't know, and the way that he kind of treats her, it's like it's so gentle. But then you know that can't possibly be true because she's got these horrible bite marks yeah. all over her. Like these really violent bite marks that like that you know, like multiply as the film goes on. Yeah. And And they don't have sex. And they don't you don't well need the couple in the film have yeah. sex. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. And it's just like how like 'cause you how could you possibly have sex with her? She's so like she's so like teeny and cute and like a child. Mm. So there's something about it's like how can she who is she? Like, how does she get there? What is what's her deal? Like it, I found her so frustrating as a character because it's just like she didn't seem real. Mm. There was some, there's something so, so she's just so strange. But don't you think that let's say in that kind of like, frankly absurdist, it's, you know, absurdist. it is an absurdist kind of like reflection on relationships because it's a love triangle between um, a man and two women, a doctor who, you know, he used to work with this other woman, Corey. They were researchers. Mm-hmm. Did he work with her or did he work with her husband? Oh, that's right. Yeah, you're quite right. Yeah. Um, she, you know, yeah, she's the spouse of his former colleague, yeah. right? So they had this kind of like liaison or whatever. There was a love affair or an infatuation, let's mm-hmm. say. So that's now being depicted cinematically as that Corey and Shane suffer from the same illness that's made them cannibals. Mm-hmm. Like they have to eat human flesh. So they're now led by this compulsive, car- you know, carnal desire to c- consume each other. It's like that type of lust mm-hmm. that is so overwhelming. It's cause it's completely disrupting his life. He can't he can't even concentrate on his wife who he's newly wed. They're supposed to be on their honeymoon. He's surreptitiously there just to get get access to Corey, find out information about her, seek her out. Mm-hmm. So actually it's it it in that scenario, it kind of makes sense that June is, she's a performance artist. Mm. She's completely curated her life and her look. I mean, we were talking about fashion films in our season two. Yeah. I also she said um, thanks to Agnes B. Oh, yeah. Agnes so B. It must, she must have done all the costumes. Exactly. Yeah. So there was a very uh, concerted effort to present aesthetically June in a certain way. Mm-hmm. She was kind of like... Um, she was very chic. She's kind of what I would dub. I don't know if this was the intention for the film, but she was like Upper East Side, New York, yeah. you know, moneyed, uh, socialite, very prim and proper, like maybe a debutante with very careful decisions about her, what she wore and her hairstyle. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a very, I would say, contrived image yeah right so in relation to a husband who literally wants to consume his ex he's that obsessed with her Mm -hmm. i would say to the point of even harking back to what freud said about mourning and melancholia the depressed individual wants to incorporate the lost object orally they want to consume the Mm -hmm. lost object devour it like flesh through their mouth 
to be actually re reunited physically with what they think they've lost. It's that type of obsession. Yeah, mm -hmm. they want to devour it. It's, you know, I would say Shane is so in love with Corey that he's a melancholic. He wants to ingest her. Do you think Corey is a melancholic as well? Yeah. Yeah. I do. Do so you I, think that's actually the disease that links them? That's the disease that links them. They're all in the wrong marriage, basically. Mm -hmm. They've married the wrong people. They're suffering with the consequences of their decisions. And they're left with, on the one hand, you know, Leo Simono, who's a pretty nice guy. Like, he's an accommodating guy. He's, mm -hmm. he's enabling her sickness to the best that he can. He's yeah. trying to keep her alive. He's trying to minim minimize her... Um, yeah, the you know, damage. The damage of the people that she's trying to lure mm -hmm. sexually and then consume. Or it could also be read in a more sinister way that he's trying to, he's a misogynistic controlling of a woman. I think it is interesting you know? they don't have sex. They don't have sex. Even though they seem to clearly really love each other. They love each other, yeah. They don't have sex at all. No, they don't. Key, and it seems like that's the thing she needs more than anything. Exactly. Um, and it also, it really did remind me of um, just those, there are, there do seem to be, I mean, as you grow up, I feel like love can kind of be... This, I mean, I think you discover more kinds of love as you grow up, but in your like teens and 20s, I feel like there are kind of these two kinds of love that I call life love and death love. Mm. And there are the there's like a kind that you that you can live with, the kind that you can and that you can have in your day to day life. Mm -hmm. And then there is a kind that is kind of like a drive towards death because it's like a very destructive love and it's a very like single-minded love and it makes you abandon the things that keep you alive yes and i think that they that both corey and oh, wow. shane like embody that kind of like death love they do idea they really do absolutely for me they are this is one of the films that makes me theoretically think of uh freud's paper uh, beyond the Pre pleasure principle the most mm -hmm. and his idea about love and death being sort of intertwined yeah you know they should be intertwined but in this film they are like they are separated in this really unnatural yes, way yes exactly I think that's why that is why June like bothers me so much both June and Curry kind of bother me yeah. as like as women that it does seem like a woman's been ripped apart wow. and like her like one of her one of her is like sterilized and childlike and the other one is just like this like embodiment oh of lust and like you know and like neither of them can really like live like neither of them seem to get on with their lives in a, in a way yeah they don't seem to be living breathing women that's so interesting I never thought of them actually being two sides of one woman mm -hmm. that Shane hasn't been able to reconcile yeah so in a way he, he he's so kind of like he, there's that toxic perception of women that he can't fuck his wife. He can only fuck a exactly, woman yeah, that he fancies. It's so Freudian, like you yeah. know, it's like this, like she, this idea that she, this woman's like unfuckable because because she's his wife. You know, like yeah, yeah, like because she's joke. his wife. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's no lady. That's my wife. Like that's yeah, like yeah, yeah, it. yeah. It's, like, it's almost it's like it makes me laugh that it's directed by a woman in a way because it feels like the epitome of like male anxiety about what women are. Oh yes. And um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So you know what? What is that old saying? Um, or it's like maybe an internet thing. Freak in the sheets and <laughs> that something. That old saying. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, I'm sure it's from the Bible or something. You know. Shakespeare. I think it's Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> 
I actually don't know what the other. What, what is the other thing? It's something, something like you're classy. You're classy something. in the streets, yeah. but you're a freak in the sheets. Yeah. So he he can't have it, it, it's it's too much. He can't deal with a woman having those two dimensions in her at the same time. Yeah, he's had to completely compartmentalize his wife as treat her as this kind of almost like a a porcelain doll yeah, or something. She is like a doll. She's like a total. Yeah, exactly, and. And he, he, he won't engage with her in, a, in an erotic way. Mm-hmm. Like, he'd rather just masturbate in the bathroom, lock the door, than, you know, engage with her. And she clearly wants to have some sort of involvement sexually. Mm-hmm. She just does, doesn't... She also doesn't know how to initiate it. It's a very bizarre relationship. Also, sorry, but both of these films are about men who buy their w- wives uh, dogs. Oh, my God. When they can't uh, satisfy them in other ways. That is so true. <laughs> <laughs> You're so good at like linking these amazing parallels. They, they just link themselves. Also, I just I did watch them very close together. That's so. brilliant. That yeah. actually is brilliant. <laughs> oh my they god! They're like baby substitutes, aren't yeah. they? Because they're not going to get their wives pregnant. It's, yeah. It's um yeah there is I wow. found that there is something yeah it's so jarring but I mean it's that's great because it's a horror film they're supposed to be jarring I read a really good tweet today it was by that woman is Anne Bilson mm-hmm. and she said something about like she was saying how strange it is when people go into horror films and then are like upset yeah. or like when the people are warned that they'll be upset in horror films she was like horror is not supposed to be a safe space exactly I thought that was such a great yeah. way of um. Horror is not supposed to be as but safe space, and neither is love. No. And I guess that, that's why they go so well together in this. Exactly. Mm-hmm. If you want your love life to be a safe space, you're going to end up like Dr. Shane Brown mm-hmm. in a relationship where there's nothing authentic going on. Your your um, sort of um, spouse uh, or significant other is performing for you. Mm-hmm. You know, they're giving you what you think they, they, you know, uh, sort of they, they, they're supposed to embody mm-hmm. and it's, they're being inauthentic to themselves. You're robbing them of their agency. You're actually gaslighting their desire. And that is the safe space of love where you're not allowing you're not allowing the chaos to manifest. Mm-hmm. And then you navigate your way to, through it as, as a team. Mm-hmm. You're just prescribing the the rules of of the landscape. Well, I suppose they both have that. Both couples in the film have that because you have Doctor Leo. Yeah. I keep wanting to say Doctor Leo Spichemin out of the uh. rock, but it's not Semino. <laughs> Semino. Um, he they have the, they have a strange performance, don't they? Do. In the morning, where they you know they have this sort of like what seems like a very normal ritual for a couple. You know, this sort of wordless ritual. Hashtag morning routine. It is a morning routine, like that, like a little wellness self care. <laughs> and um, they and then yeah and then he locks her in and then he carries on with this like morning routine on his own in the kitchen. It's sort of like he's like performing this like very, this you know sort of bourgeois, a suburban marriage by himself downstairs mm-hmm. while she's locked up in this, in this room. She's literally boarded up in yeah, this room. Yeah, he's like boarded up the chaos. <laughs> exactly. And then now he's just like continuing to perform their marriage by himself downstairs. Yes. Yes, because he's too frightened to actually engage with his partner. Mm-hmm. He's actually treating her like a caged beast. Like her de- desire is so overwhelming that it, it can't actually be looked at in a direct way or engaged with any in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Let's just board it up. That yeah. seems like the best solution. I mean, it's I love how Clardini just exposes that, um, yeah, I suppose tendency towards female desire, but in such a, I kind of felt a brutalist way. Yeah. 
but it works. It, I feel like the whole film after you've it kind of needs a couple of rewatches. Definitely. To, yeah. It's just it's it just shocks you so much when the horror gets real. Yeah. Like, sometimes you don't want to watch it after a while. I'd like I'd forgotten about one of the scenes. Yeah. I remember the last scene, which I found absolutely horrifying. I think it was a little bit like with um. Mulholland Drive. I didn't watch that. I, I spent oh, quite God. a few years not watching it, and I and then when I went back to see it, I really prepared myself for the man coming around the corner. The, yeah. like the face, the man with the face, and I was like, I know, I know it's gonna happen. I know it's gonna happen. I've got it. I've got it. I've got it down. It's gonna be fine. I totally forgot about the bit where they find the dead body. Oh God. Like I I prepared myself so much for this one scary bit that I was like, I can survive this film. I can survive this film. I can do it. I can do it. Did not prepare, and I did the same thing with this film. I remembered the last scene oh, that yeah. made. I forgot about the scene with the teenage boys the break-in oh god which is so much more horrifying it's so scary it's really scary oh she's like a monster Beatrice Dahl oh my god it's just also because we know she's actually eaten human flesh yeah (laughs) that's right yeah have you IMDB'd that actor and seen if he's okay like maybe (laughs) she really ate him like you don't you don't know Beatrice Zell is a very badass person. She's I'm so, terrifying. She's terrifying. I'm so glad that she features twice in this season. Oh, yeah, she's she also an inside. Yeah. Yeah. But she's perfect. She's so she she has that amazing horror quality about her. Um and anyone who's seen Betty Blue mm-hmm. will also, you know, maybe recognize I'm already building on that groundwork a little bit about her persona. The fact that, you know, she's essentially I, I don't know if she's like a borderline personality or there's something there. Or maybe a bipolar or something. Do you know that friend of the podcast, Alex? Yes. Alex Pierce? Yes. Says that that's one of the only films he's ever, like, hated with a passion. Basically. Ah, okay. He just thinks it was, like, just horrible. Why? Because he said that it's, like, there's, he just thinks that when he, ki- like, he kills her at the end, as if yeah. it's some kind of, like, amazing, heroic, romantic act, when it's actually this, like just horrendous act yeah. of misogyny yeah yeah of course and uh, I remember watching I've only seen it once when mm. I was younger and I remember being like really uncomfortable about mm. it I remember feeling like there was like a vibe or a tone where I just did not feel comfortable I didn't feel happy watching it. I didn't think it was romantic yeah and I can't remember exactly why now but I just remember just being like just not feeling right with it and being told like by girls by a lot of girls yeah. just being like it's so romantic it's the most romantic film oh no I would never qualify um, it that way and it's just not it's no not it's really not romantic hideous. yeah yeah and I found yeah I found the relationship really there's like, horror dimensions in that there relationship are you know it felt, it felt like a really meaningless relationship but yeah. how these two people even meet and why very exploitative yeah yeah really strange very strange very strange very weird film mm. but Actually, just one more thing occurred to me about uh, Shane, mm-hmm. who, by the way, Vincent Gallo, I mean, he's he's really well cast in this because he is a very weird man. He's so weird. There's and that <laughs> bit where they're both, they're actually performing for each other, like they're on the top of Notre Dame. Oh, yeah. Doing that, like, gargoyle. Yeah. Thing, and she's, like, laughing, like... Yeah. Uh, in, in like a, actually quite a self He looks really way. creepy. He looks really creepy and he's not funny. No. And why? Like, she's not a child. She doesn't need to be like. He patronizes perform- her yeah. all the time. They like just perform for each other constantly. It's I know. a really weird marriage, really weird relationship. It is weird. And then she kind of like, her scarf flies away, yeah. you know, and it, it's, a, it's a very interesting scene. But the bit with him on, you know, when they're on the plane going to Paris mm-hmm. and he goes to the bathroom. Yeah. And then he's there and we don't know what's happening at first when I first saw that film I thought oh he's having a panic attack or something Mm -hmm. on the plane he's actually there fantasizing about June completely drenched in blood 
lying on the bed. The sheets are completely drenched in blood. Mm-hmm. Her face is is covered in blood. It, it's kind of a pretty ex- extraordinary scene, really. Yeah. And he's there thinking about that. And it's exciting him. And it's like he's trying to suppress that thought. It's like an intrusive thought. That's how Claire Denis is, I guess, framing that scene. That it, he doesn't want to think about this. He doesn't want to think about her in that, you know, in her eroticism interlinked so much with death or mm-hmm. destruction or, you know, the horror of her desire, her sexual desire. But he, he somehow manages it. He comes back, you know. Um, and... It just goes to show, it, I, I like how the film is kind of almost poking fun at his fear, so juvenile, mm-hmm. that he's so, he's kind of a wimp, really. Yeah, he is. You know? Like he gets to he gets to Kare and doesn't do anything. Yeah, exactly. Like, he does do something, but it's like, it's not the thing he came no. to do. And it's... Um, he's kind of impotent. He is impotent. Everyone's impotent apart yeah. from Kare. Yeah. <laughs> It's just like it's uh, it's so weird. Like she just like sucks up all of the sexual power. She does. Like, and she's got so much sexual power that people like come to her house and like beat down the door and don't know why. Like, they're compelled. They're compelled to come there and get her, and they don't like. She's some kind of like twist. It's like a fairy tale, yeah. but like a disgusting fairy tale. I don't know. What let's talk about her a little bit. Like, yeah. what do you? What's the purpose of her in this film? Because again, she's she's sort of yeah, she's sort of half a woman as well. Like, she doesn't do anything apart no. from be sexual. That's right. Well, she's it's like she's just been relegated to that role, yeah. you know, and that's what people expect from her, and that's kind of almost what she ends up performing as well. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think she's maybe I don't know whether she's so much like the kind of uh, incessant nagging of the id of just pure desire, you know, un- unfettered, um, sort of rampant, or whether it is just a flip side of June's performance to be so controlled, mm-hmm. you know? I don't yeah. know. What do you think? I think, I don't know, there's something about her as well that is a little bit too, like, it, it reminded me of Evelyn a little bit, that yeah. bit where she's, like, so spoilers, where she's like, bitten that teenager's face off. <laughs> But the cheek. The cheek. Oh, the upper lip. It's just, oh, it's disgusting. And um, it, I mean, it's, it's the most horrifying scene in the film. It is. But she's also like, at first it seems like she's playing with him like a cat. It's really, really horrible. That when, um, but like at the end, that mm-hmm. sort of like post-orgasmic phase, I suppose, mm. she's kind of like stroking his face with her face. And she's really, there's like an affectionate moment. Oh my God. In there, like she's really... She's that she she's like this you know she like once the like the chaos of sex is over, she can she's suddenly free to be like a little bit more multifaceted and she can wow. like have more emotions than just this sort of pacing sexual simmering, like frustration. She can be like a different kind of woman. That's so true. It's almost as if when that when she the the climax takes place and she kind of comes down from the rush of chasing the orgasm. Mm-hmm. Um, post-coital, whatever, however way you want to qualify it, yeah, it's it almost liberates her a little bit to almost embark on a more of her personality, or or even just a side, a more, a more tender side, mm-hmm. yeah, as opposed to just flesh eating, yeah, you know, as if she's just like a nymphomaniac, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. <laughs> Um, wow. Yeah, I I thought that was a really interesting moment because it's like you're like horrified. Yeah, it's, it's disgusting. Almost, it's disgusting. You, 
It's, it's the last it's thing the you want to see. She plays with him. It's the way that she like hits the side of his head. Yeah, face. yeah. And, like, the cat. It's really horrible. It's really it is scary. Really, it is really scary. Um, and then there's one other woman in this film. Yes, that's right. The maid. The maid. Yeah. I don't know if she has a name. No. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts? That because that was really interesting. How she kept po- popping up yeah. in various scenes and. Like, she's, like, the intended victim. Like, yes. But she doesn't have anything to do, really. No. Apart from... And it's sort of... You know, just being there. Like, just being there. Yeah. Um, that bit, and it's such a... She's such a weird... It's almost like she doesn't exist as well, because there's the mm. bit where they... He brings her into the hotel room, like, married... Like, you know, over the threshold, newly married oh, couple. God, yeah. And they both kind of collapse in the bed, and she hasn't finished making no. it. No. <laughs> she's, like, trying to make the bed, and they're, like, lying on it and kissing. It's so awkward. And it's so, it's so horrible. And then there's another bit where she's trying to clean the bathroom, and he comes in and gets into bed with all of his clothes on. That's it's right. like, he's this, like, dirty stain on the pristine white room, and she's... There is something about that she's, like, the cleaner, she's, like, the maid, well, and that he's, like, just pure dirt. Oh, like, yeah. Like, in that scene. Yeah. I don't know. Wow. He's, I don't know, there's something about her, like, role. She's somewhere in between... Corey and June as mm-hmm. like this like actually she's really the only she's actually the only one that's got a job mm. like she's the only one that's got like a purpose yeah, and yeah, her yeah. purpose is to clean things up yeah and yeah there is something there's something really visceral about that scene where he's like in bed like kind of watching her like um, yeah. covers up to his chin yeah. and she's like, oh, she's like apologizing for being there and it's, I don't know, it's a really weird scene. I found that really strange. Yeah, it's very strange because it's so awkward and it plays up on Vincent Gallo's awkwardness anyway yeah. because he's a very awkward performer. Some of the lines that he speaks feel so wooden. They're so wooden. The, like, and all of the lines that, I mean, there's so few lines in the in the film mm. that all the lines are just exposition anyway. Exactly, there's just exposition. There's, like, there's no, there's, they're not actually, you can't even really think of them as actual dialogue between no. people. No. That's, they're just there to explain the backstory. Yeah, because even the other woman, uh, the, the, this other older scientist that he goes and talks to mm-hmm. to find out what's happening with the Simino couple, um, she brings, she is, as you say, it's exposition. She sort of brings up that they'd had a liaison, yeah. you know. But even her lines, the, the whole thing just feels so uh, really contrived, but but with I think purposefully, mm-hmm. very deliberately so, because he's just an automaton. He's literally just an atomic. He's so led by these impulses mm-hmm. that he just, all his interactions are just going through hoops of, with one clear destination. Mm-hmm. And it's like he wants to, he's sort of constructed this narrative that he's protecting June. You know, he wants to find the cure for his disease mm-hmm. and he needs Corey's help for that. And, you know, he's treating her the way he is. Uh, for her own good mm. you know and but at the same time you can see that it's he's actually deluded he's really deluded and that's why I think the maid does play the role that she does because he, it, it provides him with that opportunity to I guess step out of his commitment w- without fully acknowledging what he's doing mm-hmm. you know um, it, it but I, I do think that um, it's worth always kind of holding the thing about the, yeah, I suppose his compulsion to separate the woman, to cut her up mm-hmm. into different pieces that make him feel comfortable. 
And there are like there are a lot of scenes with the maid. She gets changed from her everyday clothes into her yeah. maid's uniform, and she gets changed from her maid's uniform into her everyday clothes, and she keeps doing that. And there's yeah. there's some there's like this really repetitive thing of that changing room and that you know that uniform coming off and going on, and her you know going out with her boyfriend on the motorbike and coming back. And I don't know. There's just some. I, there's well, isn't that just? Isn't she the most empowered character then 100%. in the whole film? Because she can she seamlessly can embody, like these different yeah. personas. Yeah, she seamlessly steps out of different, as you say, personas and functions in life, without being without re- reacting in a traumatized way. Mm-hmm. She can slip in and out of modes, and she knows. You know, she identifies her role in different places, and she kind of takes the lead in those choices. Whereas none of the other people can do that. They're they're completely prisoners of their pathology. Mm-hmm. Every single other character in that film is a prisoner of their pathology, and they're just res- they're just relegated themselves. Just, they've resigned themselves to performing these very debilitating, very dysfunctional, you know, decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, but they can't get out. It's it's really fascinating. Also, I suppose it's something to do with. Um her being like of a working class like yeah, of people yes that maybe it's like a little I feel like maybe it's a little bit of tongue in cheek comment on like you know the pathologies of the like the bourgeoisie, part of the bourgeoisie. Yeah. you know because no one else <laughs> seems to really have to do anything like I guess like Leo and Shane like are doctors but they're like they seem to be like you know they they don't see they have these like really lovely lifestyles they do the women don't work no or do anything she kind of is like maybe saved from like and it also kind of reminded me a little bit as well of like how when men like men of like celebrity men get into trouble they like they tend to say they have a sex addiction yeah they like tend to pathologize their behavior that's right and like you know they're like their their bad behavior becomes a disease mm. and like if you take away the cannibalism you take away the blood mm. eating bit and you just think of it as a metaphor for the way we consume the things we desire Absolutely. it's just infidelity their disease is just infidelity or dissatisfaction which is like such a normal disease. It's like not a disease at all. It's just like a normal symptom of marriage. Mm, absolutely. Nothing that yeah. scary, kind of a common or garden problem. Actually, now you've just said that with the whole business of the class element, it kind of maybe even renders a comparison with um, Louis Benoel's film Exterminating Angel. Yes. Have you seen that? I have not, and it's like one of the been on my on my list for like the last five years, and I just keep not watching it. And I even oh. I've even compared other films to it, assuming that they are that is like that because yeah. I think I compared Climax to it, and I yeah, just like, I hope it's like this. I haven't seen it. Oh my god! Yeah. But tell me, tell me the just because script. without any major spoilers, mm-hmm. because you could get this from watching the trailer of Exterminating Angel. But basically, it's just a group of very very well to do, very affluent rich people going to a dinner party, and uh, the, the, ultimately it all hinges the story hinges on the fact that they, they they conclude their dinner party everything goes according to plan there's no major bust up or any drama it's just a normal posh dinner party mm-hmm. and at the end of the night they can't leave mm-hmm. and they just stay in this drawing room no one's stopping them from leaving and they just carry on like that for days, weeks and months that's it like and to me, it just, yeah, I suppose there's something about trouble every day. And the fact that it is called that, too. Mm, trouble every day, yeah, I didn't think about that. This repetitive thing that happens, the the aspect of our, let's say, pathology that is that is continuous. 
and it forms that neuroticism the fact that they cannot escape their psychological disposition mm-hmm. you know um and and class plays into that because they're so privileged class does play into it and actually if you think about women in love like one of the yeah. really important themes for, like contain contemporary society for women in and love is money exactly you know it's a really it's a it's still even though you like we know women can work it's still a really important thing but men still earn more than women women stop working when they have babies all of that kind of thing and when you do stop working and you don't have your own money like do you lose a little bit of your existence Mm. a little bit of your life and i think that there are these two characters there are these two characters in each one one character in each film who have these this like means to independent independence but they have a lower quality of life because of that yeah. and it's the maid and it's um vicky's mother yeah who like there are there are comments yeah. about that that she's moved out of this very nice neighborhood to live in this crappy yeah. neighborhood which actually put her daughter at risk mm-hmm. because they live near to to john and evelyn like you know she's like in their path mm-hmm. because of her mother's decision to go it alone Absolutely. and to take like a step down in the social rank in order to feel more of a complete person wow and that's the same with this with this maid mm. and it is interesting that she's the she's the one that he decides to consume yeah and out, out of these two like extremes of women he manages to find one that he manages to find one that he's in a way he would be most scared of but actually it makes sense that he went after her because what he's cannibalizing is the very thing that he's lost mm. it's the old melancholic thing about devouring and reincorporating the lost objects through the mouth and devouring it devouring he's envious of what she has the mm. fact that she can slip in and out of different functions and different roles and different personas without getting stuck mm-hmm. without having trouble every day because he's so he's he's like in this kind of like cesspit of repeating his r- repeating his pathology. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He's jealous of right. her. Yeah. So he consumes her. He's jealous of her. Like, yeah. we, like, our gaze is, like, just so lovingly bestowed on her the whole time, which gets, you know, like, just the back of her neck and her hair and her face and her eyeshadow. And she's so beautiful. She's so beautiful. And you don't you don't have that same gaze. I mean, maybe a little bit with um, with Corey, but not, not quite so much. No. There's, yeah, there's a real, I think we are... It's a longing gaze. It's a longing gaze. She's supposed to be our object of longing. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I would have never arrived at any of these insights. No, me neither. I I had no idea. When I I arrived here, I was just like, closed doors, that's it. That's all I got. That was great. (laughs) I'm so happy we discussed these two together. Um, so I guess uh, we're going to learn a lot more during the rest of the series. Absolutely. Um, but we've got our things to say. Oh, yes. So the first thing is that we recently, or se- semi-recently, have put a donate button on our website. If you go to www.projectionspodcast.com, there is a support us button on the top. And if you go there, you can donate to us via PayPal. It's not a signing up thing. It's not a Patreon thing. You don't have to donate every month. You could, it can be a one-off thing. Anything is useful to us. But basically, if you like what we do and you'd like to support us, it just goes towards paying for the microphone, paying for the website, and then maybe paying for the time we spend researching and recording yeah. and editing. We'd be so grateful. We would. And if you would like to, we'll give you a shout-out, which actually we have a shout-out. Yes, we our, do. Our first... Our first person who's donated to our podcast, Julie Goldsmith. Thank you very much, Julie Goldsmith. Thank you so much, Julie. Mm -hmm. Um, We're so, so grateful. Um, 
And yeah, we would be so happy to see you guys, interact with you guys on social media. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, on Instagram. We've got a Facebook page too. Yeah, I, Facebook <laughs> I know. Facebook is so like 2005 or whatever, whenever it came out. And then if you can't donate for whatever reason, maybe you're a maid working in a hotel. Yeah. And someone's just cannibalized you. Um, you. What you can do to really help us out is tell anyone you think might be interested about the podcast we'd really like to increase our listenership yeah. rate and review us rate and review that us tell us, us what so you th- that helps us so much we'd love to hear your feedback mm-hmm. on itunes it's very very easy to do um and subscribe to us we even have um we appear on spotify as you said um of course we've got the i uh, the itunes and on top of everything else we do also appear on various podcasts apps like podcast player mm-hmm. so you can find us on there i don't know how there. many on there i didn't put it on there. <laughs> but anyway the podcast goblins have the put us on <laughs> fairies podcast fairies elves. Podcast yeah. elves. thank you so much for tuning in we'll, we'll we will be back in two weeks yeah bye bye, bye.